Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are committed to paying attention, not just to me, but to our own minds, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. It's time to own it instead of being an innocent bystander. This is your life, and you get to determine how well or how poorly you participate. This could be fun. Have you ever wondered why you think the way you do or why you say what you say? Have you ever stopped to consider how that thinking and verbalization could impact others? Everyone has to do their part. Not one is disconnected, and everyone has to improve their skills, take care of their own health, to the extent they can contribute their time and talents to the community and country. A quote by Tim Ryan. If you buy into this idea, then it's more important than ever to be aware of yourself, your thoughts, and your actions. There are so many thoughts and opinions flying around, and if you want to stay true to yourself, you find yourself bobbing and weaving, ducking the loaded viewpoint bombs until you can get to a safe place And sit down with your own ideas. I'm all about embracing other viewpoints, and I would never claim to know it all, or even be well-versed on most topics. But what I do know is that, geez, give me a minute. Let my brain catch up and check in on what I know and need to know. I remember when I had a pool. My first pool, and probably my last, It was a disaster trying to keep that thing crystal clear. I went from pool place to pool place, looking for that secret recipe, only to get more frustrated and further from sparkling blue water. I decided to give it one more go before I bought lily pads and frogs to add to my swamp. At the last pool place I planned on visiting, a young man came to the counter who couldn't have been more than 18. I felt defeated, but was committed to trying anything. Well, shazam! His recipe worked, and we enjoyed the rest of the summer splashing about in clean or thoughtfully treated water. I tell you this story because I remember being overwhelmed with all the ideas and advice and ready to throw in the towel. It's easy to do when everyone has their own ideas that they're ready to share with fervor. Becoming more self-aware is critical for your journey to self-discovery. I've learned so much about myself and realize I've just dipped my toe in. Let's learn from some experts and I'll share some of my learning along the way. And I'm not just talking about my tried and true pool shocking recipe. Nicole Spector gets us started with what is self-awareness? How can you cultivate it? Found at NBCNews.com. Let's time travel for a moment back to, say, the year 1100. We're sitting at our wooden bench with our goose quill, composing a list of traits we deem to be indisputably good in a friend, a lover, colleague, or family member. What are some of the things we might put on this old timely list? Probably words like kind, loyal, generous, and patient, just to name a few. Now let's return to the present day. We're sitting or standing at our desk, typing up that very list. 
we'd probably jot down the same virtues we had scribbled down in 1100, but we might add some relatively new concepts. On my list, I would certainly add self-aware as a quality of a person I want in my life and a person I'd like to be. But what does it mean to be self-aware? How did self-awareness emerge as a trait and how do you cultivate it? Self-awareness centers on recognizing and managing our emotions. The term self-awareness can likely be tracked back to Freud and Jung. But in the modern perilous, I think it's arrived back on the radar about the time Daniel Goleman published Emotional Intelligence nearly two decades ago. In effect, self-awareness is the recognition of one's own emotional state at any given point. This comes from clinical psychologist and author John Duffy. The argument suggests that we are far too often wholly unaware of the emotional state which we currently live in and the degree to which that state influences our behaviors and our thought processes. To the degree that we can manage our emotional states, we're better able to manage these other elements of our lives as well. Amy McManus, a marriage and family therapist, adds that self-awareness is also the ability to look at your own words and actions from a perspective outside of yourself, to see yourself as others see you. In this sense, we can see how self-awareness is a way of introspection that doesn't shut the world out, but rather brings it in for assessment against one's own feelings and behaviors. It entails, as Katie Kreimer, a licensed clinical social worker, describes metacognition, the ability to think about thinking, and implies that the ability to recognize ourselves as we see ourselves, but also to understand how others may see us based on what we know about human behavior. I can't count how many times I've dismissed people by declaring them not self-aware. I say this like I'm positively teeming with this metacognition ability. I might be wrong about just how self-aware I am, because many of us are. Social scientists have discovered that people often grossly overestimate their level of self-awareness. This comes from Tara Well, Associate Professor of Psychology at Bernard College. Many people feel that they know and understand themselves much better than they actually do. They may even have avoided building self-awareness because it involves looking at oneself as honestly as possible, and this can often invoke feelings of shame that can be difficult to handle. Self-awareness is a vital skill in fulfilling life. In any case, self-awareness is an important practice to develop. past, lack of self-awareness might have been written off as benign human quirk, but as our world becomes increasingly complex, the need for self-awareness is growing to paramount importance. Self-awareness may be the most vital skill we have to navigate our future challenges. Duffy adds that if you can manage your own emotions, you're more likely able to exert an impact on emotional vibe of a family, a work situation, or a social encounter. All of that is to say, self-awareness can be incredibly useful in driving a more aware, fulfilled life.
So here are some tips to cultivate self-awareness. Number one, be curious about who you are. To be self-aware, a person needs to be more curious about themselves, says Anna Jovanovic, psychologist and life coach at Parenting Pod. Our minds and bodies are territories for which we have yet to build roadmaps. Every person has some roads they do not wish to take and some roads they feel are worth exploring. How far you'll go in your journey of understanding yourself depends on what you're ready to explore and experience. Number two, let your walls down. When we see something we don't immediately like in ourselves, our first reaction could be to defend ourselves from it, which is partly why self-awareness is so challenging. To try to let go of judgment and the instinctive urge to protect yourself, you become self-aware through a willingness to let go of defensiveness and an openness to seeing yourself in a way that is different from what you've always assumed. Often this means you have to be willing to see yourself in a less than positive light. Number three, look in the mirror, literally. Well said, in my own research, I teach people to use mirrors as meditation tools that increase their level of self-awareness. When people first look at themselves, they're often very critical. I teach them how to shift their perspective and use their reflection for deeper self-awareness. They learn to track their attention and emotions and gain new insight into how their thoughts are affecting them in real time. This sort of mimics face-to-face conversations that involve deep listening and being fully present with one another. Number four, keep a journal and note what triggers positive feelings. Journaling is a great way to start this process of being mindful. This comes from Celeste Visera, a licensed mental health clinician. As you're journaling, pay attention to your day. Ask yourself how you feel. If there are negative feelings associated with the day, think about what triggers may have caused them to bubble up. For any positive feelings, think about what may have triggered you to feel happy. Number five. Substitute some screen time with people time. The average amount of time we spend alone gazing at our screens now surpasses our face-to-face contact. Science tells us that we need reflections to develop our sense of self in relation to others. As we spend more time alone and on our devices, we miss this essential human mirroring. The symptoms of lack of mirroring are becoming more apparent in our society. Increases in anxiety, lack of empathy, and intense self-objectification. There's a call, if not an urgent cry, for greater self-awareness and reflection. Number six, ask others how they see you. Not only should we build our face-to-face social interactions, but also use a portion of this time to learn about how our loved ones perceive us. Talk to your closest loved ones and be curious enough to ask how they perceive you in various situations. Getting perspective on how you behave or come off in certain situations can help us bring into our awareness something that was previously invisible to us. Therapy is great for this too. Number seven, angry at someone? Take the third person perspective. 
Ultimately, the benefits of self-awareness are to serve not only you in emotional management, but also serve your relationships. Michael Strahilovitz, a consumer psychologist and marketing professor at St. Mary's College of California, speaks to the importance of catching yourself when a situation or person agitates you. If you catch yourself raising your voice, you may feel justified due to being upset. However, for the person with you, the experience will be quite different. Trying to imagine yourself in that person's place will improve self-awareness, reduce defensiveness, and quite possibly improve your relationship with that person as well. Third person is particularly effective for people who are overly self-critical or who tend to be self-destructive. What would you advise if you were a caring friend watching your behavior? That would be taking a third-person perspective. Number eight, keep checking in with yourself and list your feelings. Clinically, the most effective method for the development of self-awareness is a pause and brief check-in with oneself. How am I feeling right now? What do I think might be driving that feeling? This may seem absurd, but in practice, clients have found it to be quite difficult. Many need to carry a list of possible emotions with them as they begin this exercise. I feel fine. I feel bad. I feel angry. I feel sad. And number nine, keep learning. The journey never ends. Thank goodness for that fact. The journey never ends. One of the most significant discoveries I made about myself in an attempt to become more self-aware is that I identify with codependent tendencies. Now, you can label yourself any way that feels comfortable to you. You're codependent, a people pleaser. You identify with some codependent characteristics and you're living a life of recovery from codependency. Whatever the stage, it's real. For me, it was important to embrace it and learn as much as I could so that I could recognize how it manifested in my life. An eye-opener for sure. I was able to connect with others who thought like I did and struggled over the same bizarre thought patterns, like having to be in control, feeling an overwhelmingly sense of responsibility for others' emotions, and never being able to take a back seat and feel comfortable. I could go on. Now, I'm more self-aware and can catch these feelings taking over, clarify them, and redirect them to move on. Nick Wignall helps us with 10 simple ways to improve your self-awareness found on his blog. Improving your self-awareness can seem daunting, partly because it feels like such an abstract concept. But here's the thing. Self-awareness is a skill anyone can improve with the right tools and a little practice. Self-awareness is the habit of paying attention to the way you think, feel, and behave. More specifically, self-awareness is about observing. Patterns of thought. How do you tend to think about and explain what happens to you? What's your self-talk like? What expectations do you hold in certain settings or with certain people? What are your core beliefs that influence your thinking? It's also about observing patterns of emotion. How well do you understand your own moods and emotions? 
Do you observe and try to understand your emotions or do you react to them impulsively? Do you view difficult emotions as enemies to be avoided or gotten rid of or as messengers trying to tell you something? It's also about observing patterns of behavior. Do you understand why you tend to act in the same way in certain situations? Do you have a sense of what type of events are triggering for you? Do you understand what motivates your behaviors or leads to self-sabotage? Put another way, self-awareness means learning to be curious about your mind. It's hard to overstate the benefits of self-awareness, but there are a few of the most common positive effects that come from increasing your self-awareness. Better relationships. It's difficult to ask for what you want and need in a relationship or set healthy boundaries when you're not very clear about it yourself. For example, how well do you know your personal values? Often the best way to improve any relationship is by trying to become more self-aware. You can also benefit from calmer moods. How you consistently feel emotionally depends on how you think. If you have a habit of chronic worry, for example, you're very likely to feel anxious all the time. But when you improve your self-awareness, you learn to understand that relationship between your thinking and your moods. This makes it much easier to regulate your emotions effectively and balance your moods. You can also benefit from clearer thinking and better decision-making. Poor decision-making often comes from muddled thinking and unchecked emotional reactions. When you become more aware of your habits and thoughts and feelings, you can more easily distinguish between short-term impulses or desires and long-term values and goals. You can also benefit from increased productivity. The most common cause of procrastination and poor productivity isn't a lack of effort or commitment. It's interference from ourselves. When we struggle to get to work, it's usually because on some level, our own thoughts, emotions, or habits are getting in the way. Improving self-awareness can help eliminate many of these hidden obstacles to productivity. Nick is a psychologist and works with clients all the time to increase self-awareness in many areas of life. So here are 10 of his favorite techniques and strategies for becoming more self-aware. Number one, pay attention to what bothers you about other people. Often the things that irritate us the most in other people are a reflection of some quality we dislike in ourselves. We all have aspects of ourselves that we're not proud of. A tendency to lie or bend the truth a little too often, for example. Or maybe you avoid conflict like the plague and struggle to set boundaries. But if you don't know how to change these things or don't believe it's possible, it's easy to end up ignoring them or living in denial. And while ignorance can feel like bliss, it isn't really. Not in the long term. So whenever someone does something that seems particularly annoying or irritating to you, ask yourself, could this be a reflection of something in me that I dislike? Do I do some version of that? Number two, meditate on your mind. 
I know you've probably heard of mindfulness meditation. It's the simple practice of keeping your attention focused on your breath or some other physical sensation. Then, if you notice your mind wandering to other thoughts, gently returning your attention to your point of focus. While mindfulness meditation has been shown to be beneficial for everything from weight loss to depression relief, it can actually be a powerful way to increase your level of self-awareness. Specifically, mindfulness meditation is one of the best ways to learn more about how your thoughts and emotions work. When you practice watching and observing your thoughts without attaching to them or thinking about them, you begin to internalize a powerful idea. You are not your thoughts. All too often, we lack self-awareness because we're actually thinking too much. We easily become lost in our thoughts, assuming they're true or worth engaging with simply because our minds decided to throw them at us. A regular mindfulness practice will open your eyes to how the thinking mind works and how much more there is to you than the mere content of your thoughts. Number three. Read high-quality fiction. It's often said that great writers are great observers of the world around them. And it's this capacity to notice subtle details and features of life that allow them to recreate it so movingly in their work. But the very best writers are expert observers of human nature in particular. It's their job to notice the tiny details of thought, emotion, desire, and action that most of us miss amid the frantic business day of life. And even though most of us probably aren't called to be authors and astute observers of human nature professionally, we can learn a thing or two about ourselves by learning to pay attention like an author. By describing people carefully, good fiction teaches us how to think about people carefully and with compassion. And the better we are at observing others, the more likely we are to look at ourselves the same way. So spend 30 minutes sometime and come up with a list of good fiction you've been meaning to read or ask a friend to recommend a few of their favorites. Number four, identify your emotional kryptonite. Nobody likes to feel sad, anxious, ashamed, or any other kind of difficult emotion. This is understandable since they feel bad, sometimes even painful. And while we all recoil from painful emotions, each of us tends to have one particular emotion that we especially dislike and try to avoid. A common pattern is for people to do anything to avoid feeling sad. They'll go to extraordinary, sometimes harmful lengths to distract themselves or numb out that specific feeling of sadness even if it means intensifying other painful emotions like anxiety, shame, or guilt. Nick said, for example, I had a client just recently who discovered that part of the reason she struggled with social anxiety was that she worried constantly that people were judging her. Specifically, she worried that they could tell she drank too much and were judging her for that. When Nick asked her about her drinking, They eventually discovered that even though drinking was causing her a lot of shame and anxiety, to her, it was worth it because it was the only way she knew how to distract herself from sadness in her life. 
So even though anxiety was the obvious emotion she was struggling with, she eventually became self-aware enough to realize that sadness was the emotion at the root of her struggle. We all have certain emotions that we especially dislike, our emotional kryptonite. And more often than not, that means that we try very hard to avoid that emotion. The problem is, being so afraid of an emotion that we're willing to do just about anything to avoid it can lead to some pretty negative consequences in the long term. But more importantly, by avoiding the emotion, we're avoiding listening to what the emotion has to say to us. Painful emotions are painful because our mind is trying to get our attention, often for a very good reason. Learning to tolerate the discomfort of our emotional kryptonite, the feeling we're most afraid of, can unlock a wealth of insight about ourselves and our world if we're willing to listen. Number five, draw a timeline of your life. Nick said one of the most eye-opening tricks he performed as a psychologist often happened on the second session with his clients. At the end of our first meeting, I sometimes ask them to spend 20 minutes drawing a timeline of their life as a homework assignment. The instructions are simple enough. Sit down with a blank piece of paper and pencil. Starting with your birth, mark the major events in your life along the timeline. Be sure to think about events that are especially impactful, whether they appear big or small, positive or negative. Inevitably, people came back and said some version of, that sounded like the dumbest exercise ever, but I was shocked at how much I realized about myself. In particular, many people are able to make sense of or get a new perspective on an especially distressing or difficult time by seeing that specific period in context. Being able to think developmentally and in context is a key to self-awareness. Number six, discover your blind spots by asking for feedback and taking it well. So here's a question. How often do you deliberately seek out feedback about yourself? If you're anything like me or like most people, I bet probably not often, which is a shame because good feedback is one of the fastest and most effective ways to grow and improve ourselves. In particular, while there are many aspects of ourselves that probably need improvement, it's the part of ourselves we can't see, our blind spots, that are the real problem. And other people are uniquely positioned to notice these and help us see them if we ask. So how exactly should we go about asking for feedback about ourselves? Well, here are a few suggestions. Choose solid relationships in your life. Parents, spouses, best friends, etc. Someone with who you have enough relationship credit with that they would be willing to point out something negative. Start small. At first, ask about something that's not too big or threatening. This is about building up to the other person's confidence that you can take criticism well. They'll be more likely to tell you about a major personality issue if you've shown them that you can take criticism about household chores, for instance. And then take criticism well. Avoid defensiveness at all costs. Anticipate 
that you're not going to feel wonderful at the moment someone points out a flaw, and that's okay. It's normal to feel that way. Try your best to simply acknowledge their feedback and thank them for giving it. Number seven, do some micro-travel. New places and strange environments get us out of our routines and force us to become more self-aware. Nick said, when I lived in Italy, I remember being appalled initially by how much time people wasted on long, extravagant meals. Three hours? Are you kidding me? But after spending time in Italian culture and being forced into the experience of these long, relaxed meals, I began to appreciate this alternative attitude towards meals that was more than simply a refueling process. And while I don't regularly eat three-hour dinners, my perspective on meals and their function has changed as a result of my travel and time spent in a new environment. Of course, even the regularly jet-setting to exotic countries probably isn't a viable strategy for most of us. We can get the self-awareness benefits of travel without having to go very far. Micro-travel is the simple idea that we can still engage in travel, but on a local scale. For example, if you live in a large city or urban area, you're likely familiar with your own neighborhood, downtown, and maybe a couple of other spots. But there are probably whole neighborhoods you have never even visited. This is an opportunity for micro-travel. While two weeks in Thailand may not be feasible for you at the moment, two days at a local state park that you've never been to might be. If you can expand your idea of what travel means to include local, nearby locations that are still unfamiliar, you can get many of the benefits of travel, including a boost to your self-awareness at a fraction of the time and cost. Number eight, learn a new skill. Just like traveling forces us to become more self-aware by throwing us into novel situations, learning something new increases self-awareness by forcing us to think and act in novel ways. As adults, we all get pretty set in our ways, in large part, because we end up doing the same things over and over. And while this leads to a certain sort of comfort, it also fosters a narrowness of mind. When the only things you're doing are things you're already good at, it's easy to be lulled into a false sense of security that you know how things work. The antidote is what's sometimes called beginner's mind. The idea behind a beginner's mind is that in order to learn new things, the mind has to be flexible and see things fresh like a child. This means that you want to cultivate flexibility and freshness within yourself and the way you see things, i.e. self-awareness. You should go out of your way to be a beginner. And one of the best ways to do this is to learn a new skill. Whether it's speaking Mandarin or learning how to juggle, Committing to learning a new skill is a powerful exercise in mental flexibility and self-awareness. Number nine, identify cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are inaccurate thoughts and beliefs that warp how we see things, including ourselves, and usually lead to overly painful emotions and moods. Think about it like this. 
Just like we all can get into unhelpful physical habits like nail biting, snacking late at night, we all have certain mental habits that aren't doing us any favors. Nick said, for example, whenever something upsetting happens while I'm driving, getting cut off, someone takes my parking space, a default script that runs in my mind is, what a jerk. For whatever reason, I've developed a mental habit of name-calling other drivers anytime I get upset. This is a problem because even though other drivers do make mistakes sometimes, I do too. But if my default reaction is to always internalize and blame other people, I miss the opportunity to see my own behavior and self-correct. If every time I get caught off, I tell myself that the person cutting me off is a jerk and should be a more considerate driver, I may miss the fact that I chronically drive too slow in the passing lane because I'm always talking to my wife and not very aware of how I'm driving. You see what I mean? And number 10, make time to clarify your values. Here's a somewhat intimidating question. How often do you make time to deliberately consider your values and ideals? If you're like most of us, the busyness of daily life tends to sweep you up in a constant stream of activity without much time for reflection, especially reflection on your own personal values. So it isn't any surprise that you have a difficult time reaching your goals and finding satisfaction when you don't spend any time contemplating what that would even look like. What's more, it's probably not surprising that we end up chasing artificial goals that culture and society tell us are important, like a nice car, big house, trim waistline, Ivy League schools, but that we don't necessarily find genuinely meaningful and important. A special form of self-awareness involves becoming aware of and clear about the things that really matter to us. Why am I here? What am I called to do? What makes for a fulfilling life that I can be truly proud of? These are big questions. And while they sound intimidating, that's probably because we don't spend much quality time actually considering them. I love how a shift in perspective can completely change the way you see a challenge or an outcome. This is the main reason I continue to work on my own self-awareness. To unlock thought patterns I didn't even know were shackled. Once I uncovered my own quirks, I had to decide, is this something I can change? Or should I learn how to live with it and even embrace it for good instead of seeing it as a limitation? I always wanted to be carefree. I envy people who just roll up and enjoy life without a care in the world. I, however, am scheduled to a fault and need to know if there's a change of plans well in advance so I can make the sometimes slow mental shift. I could see this as a negative, but hey, I'm always on time and I'm always prepared. Unless you change the plan. (laughs) Let's learn a little more about this concept. Dr. Rama Ranganathan flips the script with turning wrongness into strongness, the next frontier in personal effectiveness after strength-based approach. This was found at LinkedIn. 
Every once in a while, we come across an idea, a question, or a way of looking at things that literally changes our lives. I had one of these moments about seven years back when I came across this question by Gary Douglas. What if everything that you thought was your wrongness was actually your strongness? All my life, I had been told about things that were right with me, my strengths, and things that were wrong with me, my weaknesses. And every mentor and guide so far, like parents, school teachers, sports coaches, faculty advisor, bosses, friends, well-wishers, had been meticulously pointing these out. They would tell me, this is what you're good at, and these are your problem areas. In 2008, I came across a strength-based perspective rooted in positive psychology, and it created a wonderful new opening for me. The strength-based perspective argues that we cannot really do much about our weaknesses or that the leverage we get from working on weaknesses is minimum, and therefore, we should focus our time and energies on honing our strengths instead. I started integrating the strength-based perspective actively in my own personal growth, in my teaching, and in my parenting, and it really helped my life and worked blossomed in many ways. The wrongness-to-strongness approach, however, goes beyond the classical strength-based approach. This approach invites us to look at ourselves in a radically new way, a way in which there is nothing ever inherently wrong with us a paradigm in which everything that we thought was wrongness was just an area of difference, a facet of our character, personality, or ability that was so outside the normal, the average, the commonplace, that it seemed wrong. It seemed like a problem. And because it seemed wrong or like a problem, and because that was the narrative in which people gave us feedback about it, we ourselves started believing deep inside of us that it's actually a wrongness or a problem area in our life. Dr. Ranganathan said, In my own experience, there are two parts to this journey. Number one, non-judgment and acceptance of self as we are with our quirks and our differences. And number two, embracing and leveraging these differences as unique gifts to create the change, impact, or beauty we would like to. Let's listen to more from her. Let's take a look at the word norm. It actually comes from normal. And the word normal, technical definition, comes from the bell-shaped curve of normalcy. So you take lots of people, lots of mountains, lots of trees, lots of anything, and plot them on a graph based on some parameter in your, on your x and on your y-axis. And there's going to be a bell-shaped curve. And whatever you're plotting is going to fall either within the curve towards the center, in which case you say this is a normal tree, a normal mountain, and we don't use the word normal, but we use the word typical there, right? Typical tree, typical mountain, typical river, or it's a different, it's very big, it's very small, it's very fast, it's very slow, it's very dry, it's very green, it's very brown, it's different. Same thing with human beings. We plot human beings on various parameters, on intelligence, on height, on weight, on... um, of fluency of speaking on emotional intelligence on spontaneity on creativity whatever the parameter on talkativeness and we plot ourselves and we plot human beings and there's a bell-shaped curve and if you're somewhere towards the middle you say you're normal 
and if you're on this extreme or that extreme you're abnormal you're not normal now with trees and mountains and rivers we don't make the ones that are not normal and abnormal wrong in fact we celebrate them right they become the tourist spots we want to go and see that big tree or the small tree or the very tall tree or the very wide one we want to go and see and acknowledge and celebrate its difference and its uniqueness and say wow that's so interesting why don't we do the same thing with us as human beings we sometimes do i know it but many other times we just make ourselves so wrong especially in childhood when the need to belong is so so strong and all we want to do is just be normal and just fit in and not be abnormal or out of normal because we don't know where that's going to go what if this was an invitation and a chance for you now to remove that judgment that lies on either side of the normal right whatever parameter it is what if it's okay if you're different from other people around you on any parameter any parameter what if you could just see that as just yeah this is where i am on this scale full stop no judgment let's bring the piece of acceptance there and then i'm not going to stop there and then i'm going to push you to ask the next question this thing or this parameter on which i am so different from other people can this be a gift can this be something i can celebrate can this be a talent or a strength that i can leverage can this become my usp can this be one of the tools strengths or foundations that i can use to create something that nobody else has created before to build a business that nobody else has ever built before to create a piece of art or a new way of thinking or a new form of education or a new modality that nobody else has done before because nobody else was me before i came along with my uniqueness and my weirdness and my abnormality and the parameters on which i am outside the normal curve so this is really an invitation for you to take all those parts of you and all the awarenesses and all the points at which you know that you're different from others and you've been told sometimes on your face sometimes behind your back sometimes in whispers sometimes loudly sometimes in shaming voices sometimes with doubtful oh no why are you so different why can't you be like others why can't you just be normal take all of that acknowledge all those differences put it in front of you and look at it and say okay this is who i am different in these ways similar or in the norm in these ways and this is me this is the portfolio of me and then start looking at what is the usp what can be the usp of this portfolio this bunch of differences and similarities that comprise me If you want to share encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take some time to check in with yourself and explore the quirks that make you, you. 
Leverage those very differences as your unique strengths. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone threw a hole until the path was clear. That's when I found you.